0: All right. Well, this morning we are going to be continuing on our our very long journey in uh, discovering who is the third person of the Trinity. Uh, If this is your first time, we've been in this for, gosh, probably about 10, how many weeks now? 13 weeks now. About who is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we're diving into this is because. I would say in most evangelical Protestant uh, circles that uh, the third person of the trade, the Holy Spirit, is rarely addressed. I mean, we, we pray to God, God, Father, our Father who art in heaven. We do a lot for understanding who God as Father is. When it comes to Jesus Christ, man, we've got that nailed. We know the work that he did. He lived 33 some odd years here on this earth. He accomplished what there was no way we could accomplish on our own. And then we have the Holy Spirit. And some of us, because of our backgrounds or what we've seen on uh, the Trinity Broadcast Network, we get a little freaked out because we think, oh man, we start talking too much about the Holy Spirit. The pastor's going to start getting big hair, even though it's impossible for me. He's going to be starting wearing really nice, sharp Italian suits and have a great big gold chair to sit up. And everybody's going to be swinging from the chandeliers and it's going to get really wacky. But in reality, if we don't understand who the third person of the Trinity is, our life is missing something. The life, our personal lives and our corporate lives. And so, we are intentionally taking our sweet time in coming to know the Holy Spirit. Understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person and is God who walks beside us who dwells within us and points us always to Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about the Holy Spirit in the work of sanctification, that sanctification is a relevant word that the Holy Spirit makes us holy as we as we listen and we're obedient, we are changed and made more and more like Jesus Christ. This week we are going to be looking at the relationship between the holy spirit and joy so here's where i'm going to need a little bit of crowd participation and i need not sunday school answers okay because some of you are really good about that because you want want like the little gold star for church but if when i say the word joy or pleasure or happiness immediately what are some of the things that, that come to your mind now immediately come to your mind what fun okay what else exuberant what children yeah most of the time right right what, what what else time with your wife quality time with your wife good what else laughter anyone else that's unique to you new running shoes good what else joy friends family diane Dark chocolate. Good. What else? Anybody? Ice cream. cream. What was it? Black beans? (laughs) There's therapy for you. (laughs) What else? Is there anything else? What's that? Strength. For me, joy is a good night home or a good night out. With friends and family around, food, a good bottle of wine, preferably a Malbec, a great dessert, preferably creme brulee. Ah, it just brings such warm, fuzzy ah. But there's, if we really look at the uh, the New Testament, and we look at the Holy Spirit and joy. Some of what we 've talked about is true is found here. Some of it absolutely is not. Let me share from uh, luke chapter twenty four and i 'm just so you know this is going to be the kind of morning where i 'm going to be all over the place so if if you don 't catch it, write it down don 't feel bad that you can 't keep up you know paging through and flipping through all the stuff. write it down in luke chapter twenty four uh, It's the very end of the Gospel of Luke and Jesus is about ready to ascend into heaven. And starting at verse 50, Jesus leads them out to a place called Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blesses the disciples. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing god this was a this was a time in the the disciples life where they have watched their their teacher their rabbi their leader their savior crucified and their heart also just sunk straight to the bottom going oh man the one that we thought was the hope of israel the hope for us is now dead and immediately, what did they do? They scattered and they hid. And then they caught word that he's alive. And women came from the tomb of Jesus on that resurrection morning and came to the disciples and said, listen, he's alive, he's alive. And their heart starts to get excited. But yet, there was still Thomas going, I don't, I don't believe it. And now he's gone. Blesses them. And as He's blessing them, He disappears. Not to be seen again. And told, I want you to go back to Jerusalem because something is going to happen. I'm going to pour out My Spirit upon you. And here they they leave with, what does it say? Great joy and what did they do they were continually in the temple blessing god great joy and blessing god in acts chapter 5 after pentecost there's another thing that happens the disciples were they were filled with such great joy and they're continually in the temple so what were they doing they were sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. Every person they came in contact with, and they were even doing it in the confines of the temple. And they were, they were boldly proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ Their hearts did not care. There was no fear about it. They were telling these people about the hope that they had in Jesus Christ, who raised, who sent his Holy Spirit upon them. And they said, listen, we need to tell you about this Jesus. Well, it did not make the religious leaders of that day happy. And in Acts chapter 5, you see very quickly what happened. What did the religious leaders do? They called these disciples together and said, did we not charge you? Did we not tell you not to teach about this Jesus? Didn't we tell you to do this? And what did they do? Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers uh, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And religious leaders were ticked. They were just beyond angry. What did they want to do? They were so enraged, they wanted to kill them on the spot. One of the leaders of the Pharisees said, hold on a second, it makes no sense. If this Jesus was a fake, you know what, let's just let it go. Because here, here's some cases from history Leaders, come and go. If if, if it's not real, he'll fizzle. So let's not give it the attention that they're wanting. So what did they do? They called the apostles back in and just said, Listen, I'm going to charge you again. Do not speak of this Jesus. In verse 40, in chapter 5, it says... They called the apostles in. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. They beat them. And it wasn't just a, you know, a slap on the wrist. It wasn't anything like that. It, it was hard time beating, whipping them. And verse 41 seems just so odd and out of place. They, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were found counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is speaking to this church in Thessalonica, and he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in what? Much affliction. A lot of trials. But then it says, With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Joy. When I think about the joy that I have of a good piece of red meat and a garlic mashed potato and some kind of nice broccoli, something au gratin, and a creme brulee and a Malbec, that kind of joy pales in comparison to the joy that they had. My joy is found in in easiness and comfort. Their joy is found in trials and afflictions. And so this morning, I, I want us to wrestle with what really is Christian joy? What, what is this Christian joy that, that we're talking about? Because I think it's, it's difficult to put an emotional experience into words, isn't it? Man, I have, I have a deep joy in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? How, how, how do you describe joy that comes from the Holy Spirit that's rooted in Jesus Christ? So what I'm going to do to kind of point us in the right direction is I'm going to give us three contrasts, three things that joy is and three things that joy is not. And the first thing is, is that Christian joy is not an act of willpower but a spontaneous emotional response of the heart. Christian joy has this in common with all joy whether Christians or not, you know, the joy that you have is it's spontaneous and emotional and it just happens the time that you have with your wife or the food, you're around these things or you put that pair of running shoes on and you have just great it's spontaneous. It's ah oh, this is rich, this is beautiful. I love this. And it's not something that you could have planned for. It just happens and it's emotional and it's deep. Listen to first Peter one. First Peter one eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith which is the salvation of your souls this joy that we have is just inexpressible have you ever had that you're just so caught in that moment where you just go oh, i can't i'm just so honored i, I don't know what to, and you're just kind of flabbergasted christian joy is spontaneous and it is dare I say, emotional. I I think about, I love you, Missy O'Day Church. Let me first say that, okay? I think about some of our worship services. And I I wonder, is there this spontaneous, emotional outpouring of our heart for what Jesus Christ has done for us? I think it was two weeks ago, I heard an amen from Leah. And she was sitting right back there, weren't you? I'm going, yes! Something resonated in her heart to the point where she said, amen. When was the last time you had just, in our corporate worship, in, in your small group setting, in your time where all of a sudden the revelation of what Jesus Christ has done, all of a sudden you go, oh, amen. It's spontaneous, it's deep, it's welling up, and it is emotional. So much of our work that we do as as Christians, our life that is found in our Christian life is so calculated, isn't it? And it's so it's all right up in here. I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, I also believe in propitiation, and I believe in uh, the Trinity, uh, the Triune God. I believe in this, and I'm going. What? Zombie death? What what happened here? Is there no connection between the head and the heart? Do you understand what those words mean? And does that not well you up into some kind of emotional response in what Jesus Christ has done for you? To the point where Peter would just say it's almost inexpressible. The Spirit feels you in such a way that it gives you such joy because you understand what Jesus Christ has done, that it just wells up into emotion. Of laughter. Of strength. Of tears even. I remember crying when grace was born. As a parent, sometimes you just go, oh, the joy. That was joy in the midst of tears. Christian joy is not just an act of the will. It's an an emotional response. But Christian joy also... Here's the second thing. Christian joy is not just superficial and flimsy. But it is deep and it is firm. That's why... Often I like to distinguish between happiness and pleasure. Happiness is just like, oh, that was really cool. Or we're having a great party. And, and then five minutes later, what happens? It's gone. Or this person steps into the room and it's gone. All the emotions. That's happiness. It's dependent on something else. Pleasure. It's true to say that Christian joy is deep and firm rather than flimsy and superficial. And the reason that we know that is that the Bible teaches and describes Christian joy as, a, as flourishing, flourishing right in the midst of pain and suffering. It just blossoms. Joy even blossoms in the midst of pain and suffering. Which in in our world, that just seems like an oxymoron. How can you have joy in the midst of pain and suffering? We see it in Romans chapter 5, 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. We see it in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. You receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality. It is clearly a very peculiar emotion that not only endures, but seems to flourish in difficulty. And it's hard to wrap our head around that. But it's true. Christian joy in the middle of our pain flourishes and grows. I've even seen it in my own life. Just recently, back in April, walking with a mom who lost her four-year-old boy. I'll tell you, I don't ever want to do that again. But my joy came with that mom in the middle of her pain and my pain. Hearing about her stories that she tells to her son, her Bible reading, her praying with him, the hope that she has in Jesus Christ that one day she will see him again. So deep beneath the turbulence of the surface of my life, of our life, runs a strong current of confidence and joy that wells up in the sovereign hands of God. Trusting that in the midst of my pain and my sorrow and my my struggles and my sufferings, all these kind of things that are going on in my life, that God is sovereign and he, He is able to sustain me because I am His child. I am sustained by the hand of God. And that brings me great joy in the midst of this. Trusting that although I am weak, He is strong. The third thing is that Christian joy is not natural. It's not natural. But rather it is a spiritual, supernatural thing. This distinguishes Christian joy from all other joys. When something is called spiritual in Scripture, it means that it comes from the Holy Spirit and has the character of the Holy Spirit. Christian joy is not, oh, I love this great meal. That's joy. But it has no real depth or sustainability. Christian joy, it comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling us and enlivening us in such a way that it brings about the character of the Holy Spirit, the character of Jesus. It brings about joy. And what makes something truly spiritual is that it is produced under the special influences of the Spirit of God and the character of the Spirit of God. So when we say that Christian joy is spiritual, and not natural, we mean that it is produced by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the kind of joy that God has. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and yada, 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 yada. Thessalonians 1.6 said that the Christians received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 7 says that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus on several occasions said that he wanted to have his joy fulfilled in his disciples. So there's plenty of biblical evidence to say that Christian joy is not just a mere product of the human heart or the human spirit in response to different kinds of circumstances. It is a product or a fruit of the spirit of the Spirit of God. But there is a kind of a false joy that we see. One of the practical reasons to know that joy is natural or is supernatural, not natural. Christian joy is supernatural. We, we've got to understand that there is a false kind of joy. There is a joy that's not real and authentic. And we see Jesus giving an example of that in the parable of the four four soils. If you know this very well in in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives all kinds of uh, he gives four different examples of four different kinds of fruit that as seed is being thrown out, there's different kinds of results that are going on. And one of the examples that he talks about is the seeds of the gospel landing on rocky ground listen to this Matthew 13 20 and 21 as for what was sown on the rocky soil this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tri- tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word immediately falls away as a youth pastor, I've seen this. Where there's this, oh, oh yeah, yeah, oh, that sounds so good. I want that. That sounds, oh, happy, joy. I'm in this youth group kind of thing and everybody's getting excited and there's tears. There's this El Shaddai moment and people are doing this and I want that too. And so they say, I'm going to receive that. I want that. And then what happens? As soon as they get back into the schools and they get back into their family situations or their workplaces, what happens? That joy fades in the midst of tribulations and persecutions because it was not real Christian supernatural joy. It's a joy of this world. Temporary longing for something. But not the changing that takes place when the Holy Spirit collides with power into the human heart. So why does this joy vanish so easily? Why is it superficial and why is it flimsy? Because it was not a joy in God. But merely in some other comforts that God might give. So Christian joy is not an act of your willpower, but instead it is a spontaneous emotional response of your heart. It's also not superficial and flimsy, but it it is deep and firm. And it is not natural, but it is supernatural. But here's another question. Can joy be commanded? Can joy, that kind of Christian joy be commanded? Can God command us to rejoice if, if joy in itself is not an act of the will, but a spontaneous emotional, emotional response to His goodness? Can God say rejoice? And again, I say rejoice. Can God say that when it's not a, man, I don't know if I can conjure that up. It's not an act of the will. God, you've got to make something happen here. Can God say that? There are commands all over the Word of God. Commands to rejoice and to have joy. First Chronicles 16 says this, Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. In Psalm 97, verse 12, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name." Joel 2:21 says, "Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. And then listen to Zechariah and see if you can see what this kind of joy is pointing to. Greatly rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. What is this pointing to? crowd participation who sunday school answer jesus rejoice greatly because there's one who is coming and it's jesus christ and jesus christ has come so there's reason for god to command to have joy also in matthew 5 12 rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven thessalonians 5 16 rejoice always Philippians 4, 4. And listen carefully to this one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's say that one together. Rejoice in the Lord always. One more time. And again, I will say, Paul is commanding, rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Always. And again, I'm going to say it rejoice as if you didn't get it the first time he's commanding it so yes the answer is yes god can command his people to to rejoice to have joy even though joy is not controlled by our willpower and even though it's a fruit of the holy spirit and beyond our natural resources nevertheless we are commanded to have this experience so why can god command this experience for us to have joy The reason is because we ought to have it. Why ought we to have this? Is because God is infinitely worth our delight. God is infinitely worth our delight. He is infinitely worth our delight. And because He is worth our delight, we should have joy it's almost an invitation to come see what the lord has done because he is worth it he is worth everything and because he is worth everything he he is the prize that i want to 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 give my whole life to everything all my thoughts my emotions my sexuality my 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 finances my everything He's, he's worth it all and he is worth my whole life i I will expend myself in having god and him fully in me i will do whatever it takes because he is worth it he is worthy of it all and he gives me deep joy because i realize that he is the author and perfecter of my salvation The only thing standing between the command of God to rejoice and our experience of that joy is a sinful heart. So I want you to think about that for a little bit. God commands us to rejoice, to delight in Him. That this joy just wells up. We're commanded to have that. He commands us to have that kind of joy in our lives, not just Sunday mornings. And there's, we're supposed to have this experience. So there's a gap between the command and our experience, isn't there? Because I, I, hear, I hear you, missio Day Church. Some of you are exhausted. We have been a church plant for four years. And some of you have been in it since the beginning, 2006, and working hard. Some of you are here almost every Sunday setting up. You are leading small groups. You are doing the hard work of ministry. You are out there sharing the gospel. You are giving of your time, your talents, your resources. And you are physically just exhausted. And when you think, you probably thought this morning, man, I would much rather hang out at the Will County uh, Livestock Exchange then come to church. I have much more joy in buying ducks than in, and this isn't a call on you guys, but than, than, worshiping, than worshiping God. But I, I just picked on the Schistlers, but every one of you has the same thing, isn't it? Man, I would much rather, I would j- find great joy in staying in bed because it's cool outside and my window's cranked just a little bit. <sighs> Give me another half hour. Why don't you give me the morning, Lord? So what is it that brings you here? Why would you ever come and give up a Saturday, Sunday morning to worship God? I hope so. That deep within you, there is this joy and satisfaction in God that I come together with the body of Christ and I love what God has done in me, through me, and through my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to magnify God. He is infinitely worthy of my delight. I've got small group on Sunday. Man, I would much rather, instead of preaching, I would much rather just take the rest of the day off. But you know what? I want to joy. Find deep joy in what God has been doing in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters. Yeah. We have no idea what tribulations and persecutions and afflictions look like. Seriously. Look at Paul. And everything he went through. But still he said, Ah, in the midst of afflictions and persecutions and tribulations and being beat and stoned to death, left for dead, I was shipwrecked, I was all these kind of things. You know what? I will still find joy because God is infinitely worthy of all my delight. And I'll tell you, this is hard for me. Because I'm tired. Let's make this an AA kind of thing. Anybody else tired exhausted, felt like you're pushed to the end, welcome to the, welcome to the crew. Our challenge is to rejoice with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And to discover that. And rediscover that. And re-rediscover that. Constantly discovering where our joy should be coming from. And since Scripture after Scripture after Scripture says to rejoice, we have to ask, how how does joy or rejoicing figure into our obedience of this command? How do we move from, okay, God commands it, how do we move into obedience? How do I, in the middle of being jobless, being frustrated at work, of having a difficult marriage, how do I, in the middle of my financial crisis, how do I, in the middle of my, my sin struggles and, and my shame and my this and my that, all these things that you po- find in your normal life, how is it that I, how, how do I move towards obedience and finding joy? How do I do that? Well, first we have got to realize that this is a God thing. It is not a Paul thing. It's not an inspirational pastor thing. It's not a denominational thing. It's not something that you can conjure up. It is first and foremost a work of God. Romans 15, verse 13. You might want to write this down because this has been encouraging for me. The author says, May the God of hope, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So it's the God of hope that fills you with joy and peace. To the point that, what does it do? in the midst of trials and persecutions and difficulties of life, or the mundaneness of life, what happens? You abound. You abound in hope. Matthew Henry put it this way on this, this very verse. He said this, joy in, The joy and peace of believers arise chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little compared to what is laid up for them. Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy and peace they have. Part of it is expanding our view of heaven. Part of it, for some of us, is expanding how much hope we should have because of what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. He came to take care of the sins that you struggle with, and I, I, I want to glory in my Redeemer who has come to take away all these things. But he goes on to say, Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. Desire and labor after it. Do you labor after? this kind of thing, or do you, would you much rather put all your energies into schoolwork, your work, friendships? Do you labor and desire after these kind of things? Matthew Henry gives this idea that we must fight for everyday joy. And I'm going to tell you, we all need everyday joy. We need it. And just the look on some of your faces right here, you're going, I know. I'm struggling. So how do we do this? One, we have to acknowledge that by nature, that we are sinners. And that we are helpless to become the kind of people who rejoice in the glory of God. But rather, we'd much rather glory in our own selves. We'd much rather make much of me. So we have to first acknowledge that part of the reason that we cannot uh, have everyday joy is because we're sinful by nature. And that we would much rather enjoy ourselves than find our joy in God. And that kind of joy is not fleeting. So first, we've got to come to the terms that We're sinful. Although we may be saved by grace, we still struggle. And we're still in this process of sanctification. Yes, justified, we're made right before the eyes of God, but we are still in the process of becoming fully like Christ. So number two, as we identify those areas of where we are struggling and we are sinful and sin impedes, Number two, we have got to cry out to God that He would send His spirit and pour out the love of God into our hearts. Cry out, God, I heard Sarah this morning, you know she came in in a rush this morning and she goes, "I just don 't feel like i 'm connected with God, and you know how Sarah will talk when she I just holy Spirit, come fill me, and that 's exactly what you've got to do God, I am in the midst of this rush, and my life is a massive." Would you come and fill me and take the place of all this anxiety and junk and distractions? Lord, I need you. Fill me right now. I need you more than anything else. Like in a dry and weary land, I long for you. I long for you. I desire you, uh, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And you know what? That picture of a deer panting—it's not this just really nice little fawn coming along and sucking. It is as a deer is. If you—if you've ever heard deer hunter, have you ever heard a deer panting because it's been running and being chased down? That's the deer panting for water. So our soul longs do we cry out for god third as god's pure and holy love is poured out on us and as we submit to the holy spirit's sanctifying work we must repent it's not just acknowledging oh yeah i struggle with this repenting metanoias turning and going a different direction Changing your course. Being active. I repent. God, as oh, as your love, even as your grace is being poured out on me, as as I receive fresh and anew your love, and your spirit is re-reminding me. Oh, Lord, that just breaks my heart, and I am going a different direction. I will no longer follow this course, which is just fake joy. It's the worldly joy, is it's fleeting, it's flimsy, it's superficial. I'm going another direction. I will follow more closely after you. I des- my, the desires after my heart are you. So God, I repent. I'm calling it what it is. David, in Psalm 51, his, his cry is, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence and take not Your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of what? Of my salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. David was aware that in order to experience the joy he once had in his salvation, he needed God's inner spiritual renewal as he repented. And lastly, we need to set our minds on the biblical expressions and evidences of God's love for repentant sinners. Turn to Romans Eight, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, eight. Start at verse thirty-one, and this is a biblical expression and evidence of God's love for repentant sinners. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ is the One who who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of god who indeed is interceding for us then listen to this a picture of biblical evidence and proof who will separate us from the love of christ shall tribulation no distress no persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We need to remind ourselves with Scripture of the sure promises that there is nothing, even our sin, that can separate us from the love of God. Confess. Ask Him to create in you a clean heart. And re remind yourself Because as somebody shared earlier this morning, I experienced great joy this week. And immediately after what happened, all these lies came, all these distractions, all these things came to rob me of the joy. What do we need to do? We need to remember that there is nothing that can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus and from that love that we have in Christ Jesus, being found in Him, we have just deep joy because He is infinitely worth all of our desires, all of our praise, our whole life. There's nothing that can separate us, and because of that, that should make us the most joyful people. And because we're in the most joyful people, what should happen? Oh, out of have you ever had such a joyful? Uh, Spontaneous emotional response that you cannot help but tell other people. Seriously. The difficult students that you gotta deal with. The professors that hopefully are Christian, right? Uh, you know, all these kind, all these things that come out, out of this deep abounding joy and hope in what God has done. What happens? You, you share. And I don't care what's gonna happen. You can beat me. You can tell me not to say it again. But I will be continually. His praises are going to be on my lips. And I will spread God's name and fame wherever I go. Wherever I go. But Paul's words from Philippians 4-4 keep coming back. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. It's a command. It's a reality. When we are found and filled with the hope and the glory of God. We rejoice in hope. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to commend Jesus to you. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, towards Christ, in Christ, I want to commend Jesus to you. Because if He is not the joy of your heart, He wants to be. He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and who believes in Me, he shall never thirst. Never You shall never hunger nor thirst because I am the bread of life. I am am the thing that sustains you. He is the unbroken line of satisfaction from now till eternity. He is the bread of life. as we come to communion, I want you to hear that. As you examine your hearts, as you um, ask, cry out to God, fill me again, renew me, change me. Lord, I repent. I'm going a different direction. I am reminded again. And this morning, You are going to be reminded as we take communion. We are going to be reminded with a biblical expression of Jesus being the bread of life who sustains us with never-ending satisfaction. Never-ending satisfaction. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice!